every time we have a downturn, people write off of the hotel business. And every time we have a recovery, we recover to higher levels than we were at prior peak. I think you're going to see the same thing happen this time. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode is a conversation with Jim Rosolio, the CEO of Host Hotels, which is the largest hospitality REIT and the largest owner of high-end hotels in the United States. Jim is also the current chair of NAREIT, the National Association of Real Estate Investment Trusts. Our conversation was recorded on April 14, 2021. Jim and I talk hotels on the podcast, a conversation that I've wanted to have since COVID and great timing now that we're emerging from the lockdown that basically shut down the hotel business and made it once again one of the hardest hit real estate segments in a downturn. A few headlines. First, you'll hear how Host, this time around, was well-prepared balance sheet-wise to weather the storm and how it's emerging from the crisis with great strength. Interestingly, at least in Host's high-end segment, there have been few distress investment opportunities. We talk about how the two main segments of travel, vacation, personal, and the different components of business travel have fared in COVID and how Host is experiencing the recovery. One of the things that I love about the real estate business, which has affected how we've curated our guests and leading voices, is the interconnectedness of the business. Jim started his real estate career at Westinghouse Credit, and it has long been one of my themes that those early relationships matter. We've interviewed two of Jim's early colleagues on Leading Voices, Bill Stein, who leads Digital Realty Trust, and is also Jim's predecessor as the chair of NARI, and is also now on the host board, as well as Daryl Carter from Avanath. I've also recently interviewed another of the host board members, Walt Rakovich, and we've interviewed Jim's predecessor CEO as host, Ed Walter. Finally, and it's been a while, we've interviewed three others in the hospitality business. Hilda Perez Alvarado, head of the hospitality practice at JLL, hotelier Chip Conley, then with Airbnb, and Steve Wilson, the founder of the 21C Museum hotel chain. I invite you to revisit any or all of these episodes. It is the dynamics of that interconnectedness that enables and forms the foundation for our work in real estate executive search at Terra Search Partners, the sponsor of our podcast. I think of two aspects in particular. First, in such an interconnected business, no one's further away than two degrees of separation, which facilitates our ability to find candidates and develop a deep understanding of a client company and the challenges and dynamics of a search. Second, and the deeper driver, is that you just got to treat everyone with respect since, and you've heard me say this on the podcast, it's a long game. And in such an interconnected business, integrity and cherishing relationships beats transactional thinking every day. And the only way we know how to approach our work. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Jim. If you're enjoying Leading Voices, please rate us on your podcast app. And more importantly, please share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. As always, you can reach me with comments, suggestions for future guests, and discussion at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. I hope you enjoy the episode. Jim Rosolio, thank you for joining Leading Voices and being on the podcast. You're my third or fourth hospitality guest, but I haven't had one since COVID. 
I will have our listeners go back and listen to your predecessor, Ed Walter, although he talked a whole lot about ULI, which is a real different thing, of course. <laughs> Chip Conley, who had already kind of was in the process of leaving Airbnb, and we're going to have to touch on Airbnb. Steve yeah. Wilson, who created Museum Hotels, and then Gilda Perez Alvarado, who I just loved, who uh, is with JLL and runs their hospitality business. And we talked about the business from an investment standpoint. So you are the CEO of Host Hotels, the largest hotel REIT, maybe the largest hotel investor in the States. Why don't kind of your headline of where do you sit, what's your perspective, and then we'll kind of jump into all kinds of conversation. We are in an offense mode. We own 81 hotels today, about 47,000 rooms. Mm -hmm. We are the original Marriott Corporation. Marriott International was spun out of Marriott Corp back in 1993 after another crisis that we all lived through, the SNL crisis. We sure did. Marriott Corp was renamed Host Marriott at that point in time. We're the largest owner of Marriott Hotels and the largest third-party owner of Hyatt Hotels in North America outside of the Prisker family. If you look at our market cap and our total enterprise value, we're more than twice as large as the next listed lodging REIT. We're the only investment grade lodging REIT, and we're the only lodging REIT that's a member of the S&P 500. So it's really a terrific company. We came into 2020 with the best balance sheet in the company's history. Our leverage was only 1.6 times, and we were sitting on $1.6 trillion of cash, and also the best portfolio in the company's history as measured by revenues per available room and total revenues per available room as well as EBITDA and net income per key. So that is what host is all about, Matt. I'm going to use a bad word. You came into the shitstorm ready to handle it in pretty good shape, but then the storm happened and the storm was pretty tough. The storm was extremely challenging. There's no question about it. We always thought about one thing more than anything else. Liquidity, liquidity, liquidity. So the first thing we did was uh, draw down our entire revolving credit facility, which was a billion and a half dollars. That allowed us to end 2020 with two and a half billion dollars of cash in the bank. But you know, just to give you a sense of what we were dealing with when COVID-19 hit, we saw Redpar go down by, I think it was about 65% in the month of March. And it really dropped dramatically worse than that in April. Liquidity was key. What was and the low? At the low from the norm, how much did, did that drop? 72%. That was the average for the year. What was worst the worst moment? 90%, Matt. 90%. 90%. I mean, our red par in April, <laughs> to give you a data point, was $9 in April of 2020. Now we finished 2019 with red par of $192. When you're running $9 red par in a business that is heavy on the fixed cost side and you know the labor model accounts for close to 60% of costs, you had to take drastic action. And we did. We worked with our operators and I think we cut our cost base Roughly 50%, our fixed cost base, uh, we cut our overall hotel operating cost by about 72%.
So the, the operators work with us closely. They fully understood what we were facing and they were very supportive to help us stem the cash burn. Uh-huh. And a couple of questions. So one is you don't operate. And so, and, and that's what happened when you separated from the Marriott Corporation and that all happened at the end of the SNL crisis. So the model of being an investor, not an operator is what you do. When you're sitting in that chair, how much operational control, how deep into the weeds do you wind up getting to deal with that stuff? Because that's where your dollars come from at the end of the day, but it's all through others. Well, we're in a unique position relative to a lot of other owners of hotels. I mentioned that we're the largest owner of Marriott hotels. Mm -hmm. About 75% of our rooms are Marriott branded and 17% of our rooms are Hyatt branded. So if you think about that in that context, owning some of the best hotels in both of those systems, having had the ability to negotiate favorable management agreements over the years that give us meaningful rights and a seat at the table, I think really put us in a, uh, a strong position to, to work collaboratively with the brands. I mean, they, they got it. They, they truly got it. They did things like suspend contributions to FF&E reserves, relax brand standards, Unfortunately, there were meaningful layoffs at the property levels. I think at one point in time, 80% hmm. of the property level teams were furloughed. Some were laid, then laid off permanently. We expect that we will permanently reduce expenses in our hotels by 100 to $150 million based on 2019 pro forma EBITDA it's three to four percentage points in margin. So it's a meaningful reduction. And we obviously can't do this by ourselves. Uh, We have to have buy-in by the brands. And we got that by looking at a zero-based budget uh, hotel model as we come out of this pandemic. How much is that? Is that different level of service? Is it different level of technology? Is it different level of efficiency? What what is it within that three to four percent? It's a number of different things. I mean, let's start with technology. 75% of our properties today already have mobile key capabilities. And the pandemic shone a bright spotlight on that because people didn't want to interact with other people. So rather than going to the front desk to get your key, they would just use their mobile key to, to check into their room. The other things we're looking at are robotics for vacuum cleaners as opposed to maids, uh, robotics for dishwashers. Do you really need a separate concierge desk in the era of social media and the ability to just get on your phone and look at TripAdvisor to find a restaurant or look at Yelp to get a review of a restaurant? So we combine management positions. You know, there was a reduction and it's still there with respect to housekeeping services, other than in luxury hotels. Right. The rooms are not cleaned every day going forward. So it's meaningful. Three to four points of uh, EBITDA margin on 2019 numbers will mean a lot to our investors going forward. It sure does. And with your model of having, being an investor, owner, not an operator, I can imagine in a different crisis, you find yourselves crosswise with the flags or the operators, which may be different. And in this crisis, since it affected the overall industry equally at the same time, I'm thinking everyone said, hey, let's not worry about the precise operating agreement. Let's 
all be on the same page to transform how we do this business because we're maybe all in this together. And, and maybe I'm saying kumbaya, I don't know that. This downturn is worse than both 9-11 and the Great Recession together. I think it really, really pointed out the to the brands and to the operators, the financial pressure that was on the owners early on in the pandemic. You know, the brands were suffering too. It is. We're all in this together. There's no question about that. How did this disproportionately affect your hotels, which are largely luxury hotels, versus extended stay versus the other niches and levels in the hospitality business? The economy, roadside properties, and upscale hotels in suburban markets actually were the best performing segments over the course of 2020. Truck drivers, as an example, who were on the road, we thank them for everything they did as essential workers to to deliver food and other products. They had to have a place to stay on the road, so the economy performed well. If you were outside of the major urban markets and even in modest resort locations, the drive-to-leisure properties, the upscale properties performed well. For our portfolio, uh, drive-to-leisure has outperformed everything else. Question for groups. and but this is my selfish way to put it, is I'm going to go to less conferences. I'm going to go to conferences. I'm going to still do it. But some of the parts of it that I didn't really like that much, I'm not going to, I don't want to do, right? I, I'm going to go to half as many conferences. Yeah. You know, I think conferences are going to come back. I mean, we, we're tracking this. In 2022, we have total definite room nights on the books for markets like Chicago, People have not canceled their group business. I I do think there's going to be a thirst to get out there and meet. Mm -hmm. People are meeting. We haven't seen meaningful cancellations for the second half of this year. And next year, we are seeing a pickup in future group room nights. I think it was something by something like 42% increase in future group room nights for beyond 2021 versus January 19. So... There's a lot of good data out there. There's no question about it. The human connection is just so important. Right. Uh, you know, that's how you're going to build relationships. That's how you're going to build trust. And you can't do that over Zoom. So let's change the subject. We're going to talk about you in a second, but just a couple of other things we haven't really touched on in your industry. What's the effect of Airbnb in terms of how this goes or other alternatives to traditional hotel? It's something we spent a lot of time thinking about and researching. We looked at a destination analyst survey in February to really try to get a sense of what's happening with Airbnb. Mm -hmm. And that told us that over 48% of travelers generally prefer to stay in a hotel. And that's up from 41% March of 2020. Hmm. The preference for home rental was about a little less than 20% mm-hmm. down from where it was March of 2020, where when I was at 30%. Mm. I think you're going to see short-term rental supply not come back. People aren't going to go long, mortgage their house, put their savings at risk if they've been able to make it through this crisis mm-hmm. and put their properties in the Airbnb rental pool. The other thing that's interesting and not known or talked about, 63% of Airbnb's growth is coming from international travelers. I don't know when uh, we're going to see international travel come back to the United States. And the last thing is we don't compete head on with Airbnb. 
there, there's roughly a 50% rate differential between the two. And that tells me that Airbnb is really catering to a different type of traveler. I am not viewing Airbnb as a systemic threat to the hotel business. You're in offense mode. So you have the opportunity to do stuff given how you came out of the pandemic and there's some trouble in the business and some investing opportunities. How do you approach that? Does it change your model? Do you get into different segments or just double down on where you are? We were fortunate to have the best balance sheet in the company's history when we hit January of 2020. And we have negotiated best-in-class credit waiver agreements twice with our bank group. We did negotiate incredible flexibility, and we went into the year with $2.5 billion of cash. We spent $161 million of that money when we acquired the Hyatt Regency Austin, Texas, which is the first REIT acquisition in the pandemic or post-pandemic. And we got that at a really good price. We were able to convince the owner that they should do this deal with us and made it a win-win-win all the way around. We were able to give the owner some equity, fully pay off the debt, and buy a great asset and a great market mm -hmm. at a meaningful discount to where it was valued before. So, you know, there's a lot of talk out there, had been a lot of talk about distress opportunities uh, that were going to present themselves in the market. I frankly don't think you're going to see a lot of distress. And that said, I am optimistic that we're going to be able to continue to deploy capital. So let's totally change the subject. I want to how you got here. Just kind of walk through how you got to be CEO of, of Host Hotels. And where did you grow up? And was there anything in your childhood that might have suggested you'd one day be the preeminent hotelier in the world? Let me preface it by saying what I tell my kids, uh -huh. there are no straight lines in mm -hmm. the world. I think I'm the poster child for no straight lines because I grew up in Pittsburgh. Never had an inkling that I would go to college let alone um, go to law school at night, which is what I did. And here's the, the first little quirk in the line. I, I went to law school. I passed the bar exam. At the time, I was working for Mellon Bank, mm -hmm. their leasing group. I was interviewing with law firms, and I got a call from Westinghouse Credit, Westinghouse Financial Services. The reason for the call was, while I was at Mellon Financial Services leasing group, I was doing equity syndications of uh, single investor and leveraged lease deals to Westinghouse Electric. So I got to know the people at Westinghouse pretty well along the way. And I get a phone call and said, hey, you want to come over and work as a principal, as an investor? This was 1985. Mm -hmm. Graduated from law school in 84. And I weighed the scales and said, hmm, lawyer? Back in my hotel room, drafting documents, business person, having fun, finding deals, investing money. I chose to take the business route. I worked in the leasing group from 85 to 88. And then lo and behold, end of 88, 89, the strains of the SNL crisis began to become apparent. And the CEO of Westinghouse Credit had been the former head of the real estate group at Westinghouse. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'd like you to go over and start a problem loan function. Uh, I think there was about $5 billion of real estate investment 
And we had a problem loan portfolio at the time that was about $600 million. And I said, Bill, I don't know the first thing about real estate. He said, well, you know your way around a deal. I've seen you. A real estate deal is just like a project finance deal. You got inputs, you got outputs. I'll get you the technical help. This is only going to be a 12 to 18 month assignment. And then you can do whatever you want in the company. Well, fast forward, December 31st, 1993, we had liquidated all but roughly a billion dollars of that real estate. Mm -hmm. And I left the company December 31st of 93. The last billion dollars ended up being purchased by Lehman Brothers. And I got a phone call from Interstate Hotels, who was based in Pittsburgh. And I had gotten to know the folks at Interstate through interaction where Westinghouse had loaned them the money. Mm-hmm. And they were looking for someone to come in and be a developer. So I went up in Interstate. Now here I am. Now I'm in the hotel business. An old sage told me, Matt, while we were going through the workouts at Westinghouse, he said, you don't realize this, but you're getting a PhD. And you're not in school, but what you're going through and what you're doing by taking all these deals apart, you are understanding the fundamentals of what makes a good deal mm-hmm. and what makes a bad deal. I was prepared to just take another risk and go say, okay, I'll figure out hotels. I didn't know them, but I did that. And I brought a couple of hotel deals to host Marriott at the time. When I joined them, we had 35 Marriott hotels. I brought two opportunities to host Marriott to be our equity partner. And fast forward a little bit, in 1996, Terry Golden is the new CEO of Host. There was a transition of some folks who had worked there with the old regime. And I got a phone call from Host, and they said, hey, how'd you like to move to Washington, D.C. and join our team as uh, on the acquisition side? And Great opportunity, great company, great people. And I did that, and that was 25 years ago. So I have done a lot of different things at Host over that 25-year period of time and then ended up being asked to be CEO in uh, December of 2016. So you say never a straight line. Let's just kind of follow the pathway a little bit through Host because a lot of our listeners are people mid-career at a big company and say, okay, how do I how do I navigate working within this big organization? So talk about the different roles that you had in that pathway that kind of prepared yeah. you to become CEO. So I joined as senior vice president of acquisitions, and that job required me to source, negotiate, and close investment opportunities on behalf of the company. That was from 96 to 2000. In 2000, I was named chief investment officer. Mm-hmm. And I had oversight for all deployment of capital into our assets and final decision at my level. From there, we had done a number of multi-property deals in 2006. We did a made a major acquisition from Starwood Hotels and Resorts. Part of that transaction included six hotels that were in Europe. And in order to acquire those assets, I set up a joint venture between Host as the general partner, GIC, which is the Government of Singapore Investment Corp., and APG, which is the Pension Fund of the Netherlands. Opened an office in London, and away we go. Now we have a European platform. So I have responsibilities 
chief investment officer to oversee the growth of that business, as well as the growth of the U.S. business. That led to us forming a joint venture with government of Singapore in Asia. And we set up an office in uh, Singapore. We're sourcing investment opportunities throughout Asia, China, India. I made a little personal detour, moved to Phoenix, Arizona in 2010. Got married to my current lovely, beautiful wife, Pam, in 2011. And at that point in time, I gave up my chief investment officer role. Mm -hmm. And I continued to manage our European business from Phoenix. Uh And we had a a 9.30 p.m. British Airways nonstop from Phoenix to London Heathrow like three nights a week, I think it was. So I would go over when I had to go at least once a quarter. It was the pre-Zoom world, but the height of polycoms. And we had polycoms set up. So I would have my video conferences with the European team on, on a regular basis. So I did that until roughly 2015. Hey, and when did you guys get rid of the International operation. You created the international operations, but that's not part of the business anymore, mostly. It's not. And there are a couple of reasons for that. Number one, our cost of capital as a company was not conducive to buying the types of hotels we wanted to own in Europe. We also made a conscious decision over time to really become completely US centric. And that was really to allow our investors the opportunity to more easily analyze us. I'm glad we made those decisions. Now of the 81 hotels we have, five hotels are outside the U.S. Two are in Canada, North America, and three are in Brazil. We felt that it just made a lot of sense to Mm -hmm. put our capital in U.S. markets. So when, when did you become CEO? So how did that transition happen? In 2015, my successor as CIO left the company. And Ed asked me if I would pick up the Western half of the US and continue to manage the European business and mentor Nate Terrell, who was our treasurer at the time on the investment side. And he would pick up central US and the Eastern US. And Mm -hmm. I had never gotten out of the US hotel space. All my friends are in this space. I went to all the conferences. I was very current and everything. And I said, sure. Why not? You know, I'm sitting in Phoenix. Now I have Colorado to Hawaii. And I did that. And then Ed decided that he was going to retire at the end of 2016. And I was asked uh, if I wanted to be CEO. Hey, and when you picked up those assets, you're now running the assets. You're responsible for the assets, not the investment in the assets that had been much of your job before. It, it's, it was everything. It was asset management as well as <laughs> in, investments in finding new assets along the way. Then when you became CEO of the company, any comment on how your perspective had to change being CEO versus all the other roles that you played? I think it's a sea change in perspective. I think leadership is more about the journey and how you get there. Being the CEO, I think you really got to invest in your people. You know, you've, you've got to show your team that they care. I work hard to make them better at what they do. I depend on them to help me and make me better at what I do. You know, I just have a much more global strategic perspective of the business. So you're, you're touching every part of it today. Whereas when you were just, you know, your CIO, you're investing in hotels, you're allocating capital, a much bigger platform because not only am I doing that and overseeing that, 
titularly, but my relationships with the investment community, I think, are pivotal. My relationships with the board of directors are pivotal. And it's just a, it's, it's just a completely different ballgame. It's hard for me to believe that I'm in my fifth year already. It's amazing. And and you you said, it's interesting, you quoted one of our last podcasts, so Walt Rakovich, another one of your board members who wrote the book, and one of his comments about leadership was purely it's about the journey. And and I think of it as holistic. I think the journey is one metaphor for it. Another one is everything matters all the time, and you're the person who has your head in the everything. Yeah. No, I think that's right. It matters all the time. It particularly matters over the course of a pandemic year. Right. So you had to be, again, hearkening back to the conversation with Walt, your crucible moment as CEO became, boom, here's COVID. RevPAR just went down to 8%, $8. Were you ready for that? Were you trained for that? Were you calm, freaked out? What? Just talk about that a little bit. Surprisingly calm. Having lived through those two other two meaningful downturns, mm -hmm. I knew the company was in great shape. I knew we were going to get through this. Communicate, communicate, communicate. Be transparent. And I was very transparent with the board. I was very transparent with our workforce. I had no problem telling it like it is. You got to be flexible. Right. You have to understand what is going on in the world right now. And you have to be sympathetic and empathetic to what they're going through every day. This has been an incredible strain on people and families. There's no question about it. So I'm happy where we are. I think that, you know, that our team is in great shape and we've, we've really managed to, as a team, to accomplish quite a bit over the course of the last year or so. Congratulations coming out of this thing so well. So a couple wrap-up questions. Yeah. If you look forward 10 or 15 years, just think of your industry. What surprises do you see? How would you predict the future of the kind of upscale hospitality business in the U.S.? Every time we have a downturn, people write off of the hotel business. And every time we have a recovery, we recover to higher levels than we were at prior peak. I think you're going to see the same thing happen this time. I believe that the business travel is coming back, even though people were saying it's not. Uh, I just think that the human connection is critical. That's why I also believe that groups will come back and they'll meet both business groups and association groups, association in particular. That's, that's what they have to do to get their money. That's a big revenue source for them. I do think you'll see technology play a bigger role in hotel operations going forward. I'm hopeful that we'll see a redefinition of brand standards and that people will accept that. As we come out of this, the place to be in the hotel space, in my mind, if you're going to be in the segment that we're in, are truly irreplaceable assets with high barrier to entry markets, where by and large, you have inelastic demand. And so I think that the hotel business is going to recover stronger than it was at the end of 2019. Mm -hmm. That's true. And you're the current chair of NARI. So any perspective on your industry, the REIT industry, not the hospitality industry, which we've talked about exclusively here, coming out of the pandemic and going forward in the coming years? Thoughts about that? How public real you know, estate is positioned? All REITs have not been treated equal coming through this. Our good friend Bill Stein, who is the CEO of Digital Reality Trust, is at the top end of it. Always. Um, and he's doing really well. And, you know, 
industrial REITs, uh, the public storage REITs, given what's happened, are doing exceptionally well. The hotel REITs and the office REITs at the other end of the spectrum, and everybody else is in between. Two final questions. One is particularly that you're doubling down during the year of COVID on all of the stress of being in the hotel business in the pandemic, to having the added responsibility for NAREIT. How do you juggle all this stuff? I think I'm pretty good at compartmentalizing. And I'm supported by an incredible team at host. Mm-hmm. By myself, I've got a really incredible team of people who I work with day in and day out. I'm truly a delegator. I think if one were a micromanager Ooh. during this crisis, you couldn't make it happen. I do try to block some time out every day in my calendar to either go for a walk or jump on the elliptical or a bike. I think that's super important. You have to have some balance. Me too. And I'm listening to podcasts on the bike. That's the way to <laughs> keep my mind going, but not obsessively. So I can't email right. for that hour, which is a which is a blessing. Last question on leading voices is always, what would your advice be to a young person getting into the business? To my business or any business? Well, the real estate business generally, but we could stick with hospitality. Does someone want to be on that? Because you said, hey, every time there's a recession, everyone writes off hospitality. No, but you're in a bucking Bronco business versus apartments, which might be more flat and stable. But what's advice should someone get in the hospitality business? What should they do? They should explore all aspects of the business. Curiosity, I think, is a really good thing. Cast a wide wide net and take every opportunity that you can to learn. I mean, just suck knowledge in. One thing I've always found that is super important, and I don't care what business it is, Matt, is think about relationships. Because relationships are really important as you grow through your career. You'd be surprised of the number of opportunities that have come my way just because you take that extra little bit of time, you get to know somebody. Don't be afraid to take a risk. I mean, this is a little bit of Jim talking now. And you know, be humble. Always be humble. Always exhibit the highest level of integrity. And lastly, remember, there are no straight lines in the world. There's no straight lines. I totally agree. Here, here you are after Westinghouse and law school. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And the premier preeminent hotel owner in America. So congratulations. Thank you very much. Jim, this was a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.